Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We're finishing up Hebrews, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, we'll go ahead and just read through it once, and then we'll dig into it. So, chapter 13, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy great, uh, greet you. Grace uh, be with you all. Amen. Now, I don't know if I need to tell you this. I, I need to tell my wife that once in a while, but I love my wife. And, uh, of course, she loves me. Uh, Teresa and I have been married, uh, what, 30 Oh boy, this is really bad. I should have I should have wrote it down in my notes, but we got married in 1982, so it's a while ago. <laughs> um, you know, I don't have to strive every day to earn her love. Um, she loves me regardless. Now it doesn't 
doesn't hurt to do things to, to bless my wife. But, you know, she's not like waiting every day, okay, is he going to do this? Because then I'm going to love him. You know, she loves me regardless. Um, uh, you know, I want to do things that are pleasing to my wife. I want to I please her. I want to meet her needs. Uh, but it's not to earn her love. It's basically in response to her love. And you know, I say that because how many of you here love God? And you don't have to raise your hands because I'm sure all of us would. We wouldn't want to, you know, we'd stand out if we didn't. But um, how many of you here rhetorically love God? And how many of you here want to be pleasing to God? I mean, that's the desire of all of our hearts, right? We want to please God in everything. But do you understand that you can't earn his love, right? We're saved by grace. We can't earn his love. Um, But if you're in a relationship with him, you want to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. And the Jewish believers here in chapter 13, they had a dilemma. You see, they were in a relationship with Jesus, but they were undergoing persecution. And uh, they also wanted to go back to those outward rituals of Judaism, the sacrifices, the Jewish observances. I mean, they grew up with that. It was in their blood. It was part of their culture. And so there was that desire to go back to those outward forms of religious you know, observances. And as we've been talking about this, this epistle, um, this, the apostle who wrote this has used this letter to encourage the Hebrews not to return to Judaism, and he's told them why. Uh, and now, you know, what the writer is going to do now is he's going to tell them what sort of worship and sacrifice the Lord does desire from them. You see, they desired to sacrifice to the Lord. They wanted to kind of go back into Judaism to worship him through those observances. And, and what the writer is saying, hey, if, if you really, if you want to offer sacrifices to the Lord, this is what you do. This is what, these are the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And so this morning, if your desire is to be pleasing to the Lord, you got, I've got good news for you. You're in the right place. Because we're going to talk about that this morning. So, In verse 1, the very first thing he says is, let brotherly love continue. That word uh, brotherly love, it's the word Philadelphia. And in the context of the Bible, and in the context of the scripture, it means love of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So you want to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. First of all, love the body of Christ. And not, not first as in foremost, but first in my notes anyways. Love the body of Christ. Love your fellow brothers and sisters. Well, what does that look like? I mean, you can say, okay, I, I love you. But, I mean, how does that look? What, it, what, is it, what is it fleshed out like in our lives? Well, if you want to figure out how to love one another with brotherly love, it's a very simple thing. If you ever have a concordance, or if you don't get a Bible concordance, and look up the words one another. You can go through the Bible and find the words one another, because that is how we are to love one another. And there's a bunch of scriptures that talk about what we should do for one another. One of them, giving preference to one another. You want to know how to love your brother and sister? Give preference to them. Another one, being of the same mind or being in unity with one another. Not judging one another. Edifying, which means to build up one another. Receiving one another. Being kind to one another. Forgiving one another. Employing your spiritual gifts for the benefit of one another. Submitting to one another. Being truthful to one another. Admonishing one another. Comforting one another. 
exhorting one another and not speaking evil of one another. And the writer is telling the, the Hebrews here, he says, let brotherly love continue. It's not that these Hebrew believers weren't exercising brotherly love because back in chapter 6, verse 10, he said, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So it's not that he was saying, hey, you guys aren't doing this, you need to be doing this. And I'm not saying this morning, you guys are not doing this, you need to be doing this. But what I'm saying and what the writer was saying was, let it continue. Don't let up on it. Don't back off on it. Continue to do that. Verse 2, he says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. That word is actually philoxenia. I don't know if I pronounced it right, but it means being hospitable. And that's really what he's talking about, entertaining strangers, is being hospitable. He says, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now these Hebrew believers, right away, being steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, would think, aha, he's talking about Abraham, and he's talking about Lot. Because those are two perfect examples where there were uh, guests came, strangers came to Abraham in one case, strangers came to Abraham or to Lot in another case, and they entertained them. They were hospitable to them, and they didn't realize at first. Lot didn't realize he was entertaining angels. Abraham didn't realize he was entertaining angels and Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, and yet they were. There's another story in the New Testament. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead. And he started walking on the road there, and he found two of the disciples. And we're not given their names, but they were just, you know, they were all bummed out and everything because their leader, Jesus, had died on the cross. They had seen him die. And so they're walking, and you know the story. Jesus starts walking with them. Hey, guys, what are you talking about? And they're like, they start telling him the story about their leader that's no longer with them. And Jesus begins in Genesis and goes through the whole Old Testament teaching them, giving them a Bible study on the road. And who knows, who knows how long they were walking, but they got to, the, to where they were going to lodge for the evening, and they begged Jesus to stay with them. They were being hospitable to this stranger that they didn't even know who he was. They were being hospitable. They invited him in, and they had a meal together. And that was really a cultural thing in that place. But, but then it was as they were eating, they are like, Oh, it's Jesus. And then he disappeared from their sight. So being hospitable is such an important thing for you and I. In fact, Paul in Romans 12, 13 tells us as believers, we're to be given to hospitality. We're to be given to it. What does that mean? The word literally means to pursue hospitality. Now you might say, well, you know, I'm naturally outgoing, man. I'm, I'm a shy person. I, I just, I, that's just not me. Well, you know, you can grow in the area of hospitality if you're willing to be stretched just a little bit. You know, we have an excellent opportunity if you want to be stretched in that way in our fellowship here. It's called Solace. It's a ministry where we've invited people, some of you have too, invited people into our homes to stay, invited strangers, people we've never met before. We find out about them, they contact us, we invite them in to stay in our home while they're here for visiting Mayo Clinic. Now, that's, you might go, well, that's, that's, that's like way radical. I mean, I don't think I could do that. I just don't feel comfortable. Or maybe I don't have the home. You know, we don't have spare bedrooms. You know, it's just, just not, you know, we live too far away. Whatever. It just wouldn't work for us. Well, that's true. Maybe it wouldn't. 
But there's other ways that this ministry reaches out to people and practice hospitality. We provide meals to them. We provide transportation sometimes. We visit them in the hospital. Uh, we pray for them. There's, there's so many different ways that we can pros, uh, practice or pursue hospitality uh, to strangers. Another way, of course, is when we have guests coming in here, being hospitable to strangers who come to the church and visiting them, you know, trying, to, trying to make them feel comfortable, trying to find that one thing in common that you can kind of talk with them and share with them about. So maybe you're not given to, maybe that's not your nature. Some people are naturally outgoing. I remember one time, uh, you know, I, I was born in Canada, and I grew up in California. So I was like three years old when I left Canada. And uh, I was riding my bicycle in my neighborhood in San Jose, and I saw this car driving through this. It was an old sedan, and there was a guy in there, and I saw the license plate, and it had the familiar Alberta Rose on the license plate. That's the... That's their, the flower, the provincial flower, I guess, of Alberta's is rose. So I recognized the license plate. Go, there's a Canadian, and he's from Alberta. And so I flagged this guy down in the middle of the road. I flagged him down, and the guy stops, and I'm like, you're from Canada. I mean, I was like probably like 12 years old or something like that. And uh, he's like, yes, you're right. You know, of course, you hoser. No, he didn't say that. But, <laughs> eh? <laughs> he didn't say that. But, you know, I'm like, you're from Canada. I'm from Canada. You need to come and meet my mom. <laughs> and my dad was out working. It was just me and my mom, you know. So this guy's like, okay, you know. So he parks his car, and I walk him into the house, and I go, mom, this guy's from Canada. And it turned out he was from Edmonton, where I was born and all this stuff. And my mom is like, later on, she's like, I can't believe you invited a total stranger into our house. And it turned out we're like, so, so, you know, my mom's like, oh, you know, trying to be friendly to this person. And say, so why are you here in town? Turned out the guy was a Rosicrucian. You know what that is? They're, they're into this old Egyptian hidden secret knowledge type stuff, kind of like the, the Masons type of a thing. And uh, he, there's a museum in, in San Jose. There's a, there's a big, I think their headquarters is in San Jose. And he was one of their muckety mucks who was going to visit there. And so we invited this cult guy into our house and uh, to my mom, you know. And so, so, so I think I'm a little bit given to hospitality. I think it's just a natural thing for me. And Teresa's actually the same way. So for us, it's really easy to invite people. It's, it's not, it's not, we've done it all our married life. Even before we really considered that it was ministry, we just did it. We had people staying with us. And so it's a common, for us, it's, it's, it's easy. Now, for some of you, maybe it's not that easy. But you can stre- if you're willing to stretch, you can grow in that area just by doing a little bit. Just by going a little bit out of your way, maybe go to a hospital and say, just visiting them. You might come, well, I don't know what to say to them. All you have to do is say, hey, can I pray for you? And that's all you have to do. And all of us can pray, right? We're believers. We can pray. So there's ways that you can do that if you want to grow in that way. But that's one way to please the Lord, is to love strangers. Love those that Christ puts in your path. Verse 3, Hebrews 13, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. How do you and I remember the afflicted, those that are ill, those that are being persecuted, those that are suffering. It's to pray for them as the Lord brings them up in your mind. As you're thinking about them, pray for them. If they're local here, visit them. Seek to comfort them. Seek to relieve their suffering in some way. So you want to please the Lord? Love those who are afflicted. Verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. The undefiled bed here that the writer is talking about, it's referring to sex 
within the context of the marriage of one biological male and one biological female. It's funny, you have to say that nowadays. Before you could just say it's a marriage, you know, and everybody understood what you mean. Now it's like, well, wait, are you talking about two men or two women? You know, no. It's a man and a woman. Well, what if they once were a woman, now they're a man? No, it's one biological man and one biological woman. That's the context of marriage as far as the Bible is concerned. Any sexual relations outside of the marriage of one man and one woman, be it extramarital, be it premarital, be it heterosexual or homosexual, it does not honor God and it's sin and it doesn't please God. And, and the Bible says here, God's going to judge that. You know, it's interesting. Satan wants to destroy people through sexual immorality. You guys realize that? He's out to get people, and that is one of the methods that he uses to destroy people is through sexual immorality. It's funny. You know, I, I do premarital counseling, and one of the things, it's one of the key aspects of my counseling, or, you know, it's not a key aspect, but it's one of the things I, I always have to bring up when I'm doing premarital counseling is, hey, are you two sleeping together? Are you having sex together before marriage? And if they are, I, man, you guys got to stop doing this. It, and I explained to them, of course, that, that it's sin and stuff. And, you know, premarital counseling, it, it, I'm always, I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm going to always bring it up. I've got I've to do that. I've got to bring it up to you. I've got to make sure, you know, I've got to remind you. I've got to exhort you. Uh, and, and it's funny because Satan does everything he can to get the unmarried couple to have sex before marriage. I mean, it's a struggle. He's, he's always trying to do that. And then, so that's premarital counseling. And then sometimes I have to do marriage counseling. And marriage counseling, it's amazing. Once that same couple that, you know, they couldn't stay away from each other before they were getting married, you know, they, the temptation to sex and Satan's trying to tempt them in that way. And once they get married and they have marriage problems, now Satan tries to keep them from having sex. And that's, that's when God blesses it within the context of marriage. It's, it's amazing. So you want to please the Lord and just love your spouse. Love your spouse. Verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He says, let your conduct that means the way you conduct your life and the way you conduct your affairs, how you live your life. Let it be without covetousness, without the love of money, without avarice. That's a word we don't really use very often. What does avarice mean? This is the definition. It's an insatiable greed for riches, an inordinate, miserly desire to gain and hoard wealth. You're just you know, hanging on to that money. So let your conduct be without the love of money, without avarice. Instead of covetousness, be content with such things as you have. You know what that means? It's an attitude of basically being satisfied with what you have, of having enough. Do you have enough? John D. Rockefeller is a very, very, very wealthy man from a couple generations ago, uh, was reportedly asked once, how much money is enough? And you know what his answer was? He said, a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's not being content. Being content is, you know what? I have enough. It says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That word leave, Jesus will never leave us. That word leave means to send back, to relax, to loosen. 
God says, I'm never going to loosen my hand of protection on you. I'm I'm never going to relax taking care of you. It means to give up, to omit, to calm, to leave, not to uphold, to let sink. Jesus says, I'm not going to let you sink. I'm not going to let go of my grip on you. I'm going to hang on to you. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And that word means to abandon or desert or to leave in straits or to leave helpless or to leave behind. Jesus says, man, I'm never going to do these. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to leave you behind. So you want to please the Lord? Man, love what you have and what he has blessed you with. Don't try loving what you don't have. Just love what you have. It's real simple. Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. You know, by the time this epistle had been written, it was written in the late 60 A.D., you know, getting closer to 70 A.D., and of course 70 A.D. is when Jerusalem was destroyed. But it was written in that last decade before Jerusalem was destroyed. And by the time this epistle had been written to the believers in Jerusalem, Stephen, the Bible says, a man of good reputation, full of Holy Spirit and wisdom. I mean, this guy stood out among the the disciples there. He had remained faithful to the Lord, and he was martyred for his faith and for his testimony. Not only that, James, the brother of John, one of the original 12 disciples, he had been martyred in 44 AD. Not only that, but James, the brother of the Lord, he was the bishop of Jerusalem. He had been martyred in 63 AD. So these guys, these these leaders, these these teachers, these, these godly men that were set an example for the believers, the Hebrew believers, they had watched their lives they had watched them, they, they, they were faithful to the Lord, they remained faithful in the face of persecution, and they remained faithful as they died, their last breaths. And the believers saw these things. And so they were saying, hey, live your lives as the, those examples. They lived as examples and they died examples. And the apostle says, man, remember the faith of those spiritual leaders. Consider the outcome of their faith and follow their example. So you want to please the Lord? Love those he has provided as spiritual guides and examples to you. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life, especially earlier on in my life, when I read all these stories about all, all these believers that had all these wonderful experiences with God, or you know, they, they had this tremendous thing like Joseph being in prison, and then God just miraculously worked away that, you know, just he worked it for good in their lives. And you look at those Bible stories, you go, well, that's them. They must have been different. They must have had a, a special relationship with the God or with God, or or that was the way God interacted with people in those days. But today, man, I live in in modern times, and you know, it just doesn't seem like it's the same. And I think the apostle here is reminding these Hebrew believers and reminding you and I today, Jesus hasn't changed. The Lord that you and I serve, the Lord who saved and used all those great men and women in the Bible, he hasn't changed. He's the same today as he was before. He's the same as he's going to continue to be. And he wants to be your deliverer. He wants to be your all in all. He wants to take care of you, and he wants to bless you and use your life, just like he used the lives of these people that we read about in the Bible. Verse 9, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, 
For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. It's such an important word, important sentence. It's good that the heart be established by grace. And you guys know what grace is, right? It's unmerited favor. It's unearned favor. You and I were saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It's fundamental to Christianity. And so the, uh, the writer here is saying, let your heart be established by grace. All these various and strange doctrines, being occupied with foods, all those, those outward ritualistic, legalistic things, they all emphasize external rituals and external religion. And those things, they're in direct contrast to the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith emphasizes our hearts and our consciences before God. So instead of being occupied with externalism, be established by grace. You know, it's interesting. I've witnessed uh, many, or not many, but I've witnessed some well-meaning believers who have gradually moved away from grace, and they've moved towards a works-based relationship with the Lord. They start becoming preoccupied with certain dietary restrictions, also, now there's certain things they don't eat, not because their stomachs can't handle it or they're allergic to it, because it's a religious thing. I, I just don't feel like I, you know, it's a wrong thing to do or so. They start observing certain Jewish festivals and feasts. They start dressing differently. And the writer is saying, man, let your heart be established by grace. There's a reason why the apostle mentions the heart. Because the heart is the point of contact with God in a believer's life. It's, when, it's where you and I come to God. It's our hearts is what is con- makes contact with God. It's where our rebirth begins. It all happens in our heart. But you know what? The heart is also the point of departure from God too. It's also where sin starts. The Bible says that sin starts in the heart and then it manifests its out, it outwardly to actions. So the heart is such a key thing. And so it's important to let your and my heart be established, which means to be made firm or to be confirmed or to be made sure by grace. So if you want to please the Lord, man, love His grace. Cling to it. Don't depart from it. And extend it to those around you. Live by grace. Everything you do, do by grace. Verse 10. We have an altar from from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, the altar that you and I have, basically, it's the cross of Christ and everything that the cross of Christ represents. Through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have pardon from sin. We have atonement. uh, We have justification. We have salvation. We now can approach God. We have peace with God through Christ Jesus. All those things, that's the altar that you and I have. Those who served under the old covenant, the writer says, they have no right to partake of that fellowship, that communion, that relationship that you and I enjoy in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they're trying to approach God through the Levitical sacrifices. And you and I, we're, tr- we're approaching God through faith in Christ Jesus. Those two are mutually exclusive of each other. You know, this message... That you know, when, and when I started Hebrews, I mentioned that kind of the overall theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old covenant. But you know what? He's not only just better than the old covenant. He's the only way that you can, I, you and I can approach God. 
we can't approach God through the Old Covenant. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now what he is referring to is the Day of Atonement uh, under the Old Covenant. And under that Old Covenant, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, they were to take one young bull and they were to sacrifice it as a sin offering. They were to take two rams, sacrifice those as a burnt offering, and they were to take two goats, another two goats, that would be the sin offering. And one goat was slain and its blood was brought into the sanctuary for the sin offering. The other goat... The, the high priest would lay his hands on the other, pro, on the other goat, confess, its, confess the sins of the priest and of the people on that goat, and then it was released into the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat. That's where you get the term, the scapegoat. That goat would go into the wilderness representing how God removed the sins from the people, and they would, they would go into the, they'd be gone. The sins would be gone. That was all a picture of what Jesus Christ would do. Well, the carcass of the bull and the goat that were sacrificed for the sin offering, they would be taken outside of the city and burned. Why? Because it was considered unclean. It was treated like dung and refuse. Everything that you read about when you go through the Old Testament and you start reading about outside the camp or outside the city, basically that everything that went outside the city was ceremonially unclean. And now, you know, these, these uh, Hebrew believers, they're under tremendous pressure you know, basically, they've got Jewish people all around them, right? They're in Jerusalem. That's like, that's like the heart of Judaism. And they've just left the sacrificial Levitical system, and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the t- tremendous pressure that these believers would have felt there? You know, if they had other Jewish family members that were still steeped in Judaism or their neighbors, they would be ridiculing them because they'd say, hey, you don't even have an, off, an altar for your sacrifices. Well, it's interesting because after 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And for 2,000 years, the Jews have not had an altar. They haven't had an opportunity. There, there's no way for them to do blood atonement. So now they've kind of changed Yom Kippur. They've changed it now to where they're afflicting their souls. You know, they've, they, they've, they've managed to kind of make it work for them, or at least what they think to make it work for them. But the apostle here is saying to these believers, hey guys, you do have an altar, but it's outside the camp. And we're like, Whoa, outside the camp? Yeah. That's where Jesus took your and my sin. He took our shame, our disgrace upon himself. And Jesus, was off, was, who was our uh, sin offering, he died outside the camp. He died outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And so in verse 13 it says, Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So the apostle here is telling his Hebrew readers, Man, leave the temple. Leave the rituals. Leave dead works. Be separate. Now, separation is not just what you were separated from, leaving something, but what you're separated to. You know, when I perform a wedding ceremony, you guys have been to weddings before, you know, you've got, whether it's indoors or outdoors, you usually have a crowd of people, visitors that are there, and then you have, you know, usually the, the, the priest who's doing the wedding, or pastor, whoever it is, and then the groom's up front, right? And then the, the bride enters in from the back. 
And everybody stands up and looks at the bride and they're watching the bride. You know, there's some symbolism between that where the bride is walking towards the groom. He's, she's walking past all these people, all these other potential grooms. Of course, there's women there too, but it, it's symbolic. She's walking past all these. She's separating herself from all these other possible grooms, these other men, and she's separating herself to her husband who will be her husband shortly once the ceremony is over. The Apostle Paul, he was separated from being a Pharisee, from his Pharisaical life. But he was separated, as it says in the Bible, he was separated to the gospel of God. And these Hebrews, they were having a hard time leaving the temple. And they were having a hard time leaving the rituals and the, and the, and the stuff about uh, you know, all that outward external religion. But they needed to come to Jesus. They just needed to come to him. I know a lot of you have come from some form of organized religion that had rules. It had, they had rituals. They had dead works. And I know that it's hard to leave those things behind. I mean, you've been steeped in it. You've been, you've been raised in it. Um, but you see... You and I, we've been separated from dead religion, but we're separated to Jesus. And so he's telling these believers, man, just leave all that behind and come to Jesus. Now, of course, coming to Jesus does mean you're, you will also bear his reproach. And you guys probably have experienced before. Your friends and your family aren't going to understand you. They're like, Why are you doing that? Or, you know, I'm glad it's working for you, but, you know, they're going to resist you. They might even mock you. But Jesus said here in Matthew 10, 24, he said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Jesus said, if they're calling me demon-possessed, what do you think they're going to call you? In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So leaving all that dead external religion and rituals behind and coming to Jesus, you will experience tribulations. Jesus said you will have tribulations in this world. But the reward is worth it. The reward is eternal life. The reward is forgiveness of sins of finally being forgiven, finally having peace with God because we're saved by grace, nothing that, we can, nothing that we can earn. Verse 14, For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. You and I, we have no city here, right? We don't belong to this world system. It's interesting, you know, uh, I don't know if you came to Christ uh, you know, maybe you were raised in the church, raised in a Christian home, and you at some point you made a decision to follow Christ, or maybe you weren't a Christian and you got saved later on in life or early in life, whenever. But you know, once you come to that point where you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, have you ever noticed that the world just you just don't feel like you fit in anymore? And, and I remember a time when I gave my heart to the Lord, and then then I started walking away from the Lord, and I started backsliding and getting into stuff. And you know, I didn't make a very good sinner. I mean, I didn't make a good person in the world because I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I, and I, had, that, I had that Holy Spirit in me. He didn't leave me. He didn't leave me. I, he's a sign and seal of our salvation. But, man, I was grieving him big time. And I was miserable because it's like, man, I, I don't belong there. I know I didn't belong there. But I was being rebellious and I didn't want to be with Jesus. 
It's a miserable place to be. Backslidden Christians are about the most miserable people on the face of this planet. They really are. They might pretend and act like they're not, but they are. You and I, we don't belong to this world system. We don't belong to this. We don't have a continuing city here. We need to be like Abraham who waited for the city whose foundations and uh, builder and maker is God. Like all those patriarchs we talked about in chapter 11 who confessed that they were strangers and aliens uh, in this world and they desired a better and a heavenly country. That's what we need to be doing. Verse 15, Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So you want to please God by offering sacrifices? Then offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to his name continually. And therein lies the sacrifice, the continually offering praise and thanksgiving. Let's be honest, there's a lot of times we don't feel like praising God. There's a lot of times we feel miserable. There are times where we are struggling to find something to be thankful about. But you know what? That is precisely the time that we need to be blessing and thanking the Lord. Because that's when it's offered sacrificially. When you don't feel like it, that's when we need to be offering it sacrificially. And notice our lips are mentioned. Why? Because we need to vocalize our praise and thanksgiving to God. Not just think about it. We need to be vocalizing it and worshiping the Lord. You know, there's one song that we sing, and I kind of grab the lyrics from it, because I think it speaks so well to this. It's that song, it's called Blessed Be Your Name. It says, Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Isn't it easy to bless and thank the Lord when things are just working out great? Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. When I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Okay, so the, uh, the abundance is flowing, blessed be your name. But you know what? When I'm in the wilderness, I don't know where I'm going, and things are just, it's desolate. That's a time to bless the name of the Lord, too. He says, uh, it says, uh, blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world is all that it should be. Man, everything's just peachy. Bless the name of the Lord. But then it says, on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be your name. That's the attitude you and I are to have. That's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving when you don't feel like it. Verse 16, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. These are all, all these things that we've talked about are sacrifices that pleases God. You want to do some sacrifices? Those are the things to do for the Lord. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Your pastors, there's only one here, but your pastors, (laughs) your teachers, your ministry leaders, we all have to give an accounting for how we've ministered to you. Give me, give them a reason to be joyful. And I tell you what, when people pray to receive Christ, that's awesome. When people request to be baptized, that is just, it's, that, that, when, when those things happen, it's like, you know what, this is what, this is what it's all about. It's not about drawing in big crowds and getting your name here or there. It's seeing fruit in the lives of believers. When people start falling in love with the Word of God, simply just falling in love with the Word of God, man, you can see it, and it's a blessing. 
When people start seeking to be used by the Lord in ministry, when they say, you know what, I feel like I've got this gift and I want to use this gift for the kingdom. I want to, I want to edify the Man, that's a blessing. When people's failing marriages and broken relationships are restored, man, that brings joy to my heart. It brings joy to the pastors and teachers. Verse 18, now he's kind of closing his letter here. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. It's kind of interesting because the apostle, he starts out basically asking for prayer kind of generally, right? Just, just pray for us. But then he says, he also asks specifically that I may be restored to you the sooner. And I think why is because he realized the power of prayer would determine how soon he would come to visit these believers. He believed in the power of prayer. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, you know, if you've been taking notes this morning, writing down, okay, these are the things that are pleasing to God. So I'm going to make a note of this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know, you check off list. You want to do what is pleasing to God? It's simple. It's even simpler than the list you've just made. Just love Jesus. And just love Jesus. Let him lead you and guide you by his Holy Spirit. And as Paul says there in Philippians 2.30, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is going to give you that desire to do those things that are pleasing to him. And he's going to equip you and enable you to do that. Through His Holy Spirit, one of the there's several times, a few times in the in the Bible where uh, Jesus was asked this question, and in Matthew 22, He was asked this question, verse 36. He, a man came up to Him and says, "Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law?" And Jesus said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And just start loving God. He's going to give you the love for his people. He's going to, he's going to, it's just, he's the first thing. Love him first and foremost. Verse 22. He says, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you, in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now a lot of people uh, believe, myself included, that this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul from Rome. And it's kind of, this kind of seems to be a clue to it although it's never told outright, so we can't say definitely it is, but it, it appears to be written by the Apostle Paul from Rome. And if you know Paul, he was the Apostle to the Gentiles. And, you know, his teachings there, when he went out into Antioch and he went out from there teaching all these, you know, starting all these churches, news was coming back to Jerusalem, and there were Judaizers, there were Christians that were kind of still trying to cling to the rituals and saying, well, these Gentiles, you know, if they want to be Christians, they first have to become Jews. They have to be uh, uh, circumcised. 
And then once they're circumcised, then, you know, then, you know they, they, they were trying to bring in Judaism. They're called the Judaizers into Christianity. So there were a lot of these people in Jerusalem. And so Paul's writing to these, I believe, Paul's writing to these, uh, Gent- or these Jewish believers, these Hebrew believers. And I think you know, he understands his audience. And he's just treating them so gently. Notice he's not using his apostolic authority. You know, as the apostle of the Lord Jesus, I command, you know, he's not doing that. He's not commanding. He's basically just gently encouraging them and exhorting them to do these things. And he says, don't become impatient at my counsels in this brief letter. And you might go, this brief letter? There's nothing brief about 13 chapters. How many weeks were we on it? But considering the breadth of the topics covered in this epistle, man, it truly was brief. You know, as we got into chapter 11, and he's talking about all these different people. He says, time would fail to tell me of all these other people, you know. Uh, there was so much that he could have taught. He, Melchizedek, he could have just really dug into Melchizedek. And he did just a little bit. He just kind of scratched the surface. We come to the end of this epistle now. And uh, I'll just surprise you what we'll be doing next week. But uh, So... You know, I think it's fitting. We've talked about faith. We talked about the hope. And we finished this chapter, this book, talking about love. And it's so important. The greatest of these things is love. And so, you know, if you want to start living a life that's pleasing to God, I mean, God already loves you. He gave His Son to die for you. I mean, there's no greater love than, than, than dying for someone. Jesus sent His Son to, or God sent His Son to die for us. So He loves you. But if you want to live a life that's, you want to just please Him and just respond to that love, then just love Jesus and start, you know, just start applying these things in your life. But, you know, focusing on Jesus, it'll all, it just kind of fits. You'll produce fruit. You start loving him first and foremost. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.